Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to season four of the Fast Track Impact podcast. So a few months ago, I was asked to come up with the top five lessons that I've learned over the last decade of research and training I've done on impact for an infographic and conference presentation to early career researchers. Now, coming up with five lessons as succinctly as you need for an infographic, I will confess was a bit of a challenge, but I did it and I want to share those lessons with you today. I think when I finished, the thing that surprised me the most was the clear theme that ran through all of these lessons, which was this idea of co-production, that to achieve impact that really works efficiently, rather than taking a scattergun approach or dreaming up impacts from your ivory tower, you need to start by getting to know the people who might use your research, their hopes and dreams, fears, challenges, and work with them to design your research from the outset so that it meets their needs. Now, I've dedicated an entire chapter to this topic in my Impact Culture book, and I've built these five lessons that you're going to hear in a moment into the first take-home message in the epilogue of my book. I'm going to try and go a bit deeper into this maybe next week because my next paper uh, about impact is all about doing co-production with more disempowered and marginalised groups um, and some really tricky lessons um, and deep, deep thinking that we need to do um, when we're, we're working in those kinds of contexts. Now, you might have heard me talking about some of these points before. Uh, I think it's really important, though, that we ground ourselves in the basics of impact, and it's good to remember some of this stuff. Of course, some of you might be joining this podcast for the first time this season, and it's really important for you that you've got that foundation. So these are key tools that I use on a day-to-day -day basis, that I train in, that people all over the world are using to generate impact super efficiently uh, and effectively. So uh, we'll look at this and then we'll build on this, um, going much deeper into the impact culture stuff for the later, uh, for the rest of this season. Now, hopefully, for those of you who are already familiar with this stuff, you're going to see how my thinking has evolved and uh, you'll hear some new things since you've last heard me talking about this. We'll see. Uh, but I'm going to start by reading out the five lessons in summary and then I'll go into each one in turn. So I'm just going to read a few sentences from the epilogue to uh, act as the summary, but I'll then discuss this uh, in more discursive mode and we'll see where this goes for each of the five. So the first lesson is to find out who is interested in your research. Next, start with their needs, not your ideas. Give as much as you get. Base actions on bodies of work rather than your latest findings. And be curious about what works. So the first point is that you need to start any research project that you want to have impact by finding out who might be interested in your research. 
Work out as early as possible who outside the academy is interested in your research and might benefit from it. If you can't think of anyone, get help from someone who is better connected than you. And if you have limited time, prioritise the most important organisations or groups, for example, those that are highly influential or vulnerable and hard to reach. So let's unpack this first point. Uh, essentially, what I'm talking about here is stakeholder analysis. And so if you want uh, some of my free tools for doing this, you can go to the Fast Track Impact website. So that's fasttrackimpact.com forward slash resources and then go to I want to plan my impact. Now, ideally, you need to do a stakeholder analysis as early as possible before you've even applied for funding, let alone started the research. And I start by asking who might be interested, because that's actually the easiest question to answer. Most people, when I ask them this in a training, with a bit of thought, can come up with at least someone other than their mum who they think might be interested in their research. But if you can't answer that, then um, I would ask who I would like to be interested in my research. Uh, so quite a few people work in areas where there isn't anyone actually interested, but uh, they need people to be interested. They want people to be interested. Who are those people instead? And if I can't even answer that question, then I'm going to get help from someone who is better connected to the outside world than I do. I'm going to go for coffee with a colleague who works with stakeholders, does public engagement, uh, and just pick their brains and find out who they think might be interested in my research. Uh, even if you think you know all the stakeholders in your research, it might still be worth pausing right now and asking yourself if there are some new groups who might be interested in your work now that you've not considered working with before. And I think it's always good to do this. A stakeholder, a stakeholder analysis should be a dynamic thing because the stakeholder landscape changes. New people become interested in your work. The context changes out there uh, and all of a sudden something different is newsworthy. Uh, people are contacting you about different aspects of your research and when you stop and think actually there are some really important groups now that I need to engage with. Next I need to prioritise who I'm going to reach out to so that they can help shape the research with me and to do this I'm going to ask two more questions so interest is the first question a couple of more coming up. First, I ask which of the groups I think might be interested in my work has most influence and might be able to help me achieve impact from my research based on shared interests. So uh, interest is the first question. Influence is the second question. And when you ask this, quite often you discover that there are some quite obvious groups and organisations who would probably be massively interested in what you're doing if you were to reach out to them, but they're not typically knocking on your door. And they may also have resources uh, that you could use with them to achieve impacts that you could never achieve by yourself. They have entire members of staff dedicated to achieving this stuff. Who knows? Uh, data, uh, access to networks, the, the whole lot. So, uh, so it's good to, to revisit this uh, and, uh, and find out who are these influential groups and, uh, and don't take it for granted that just because you thought you knew who they were a few years ago that they, those groups are still the same. 
Um, uh, now, I said I would uh, kind of thread through the season with examples um, of what I'm doing in uh, in my new centre at, uh, at SRUC. So uh, a wee example uh, of this um, for me was uh, that uh, it was a couple of years ago now, I realised there was a new United Nations initiative working on the very same environmental issues that I research. And given their potential influence, this is the UN after all, I made it my business to reach out to see how I could help them. Uh, and as a result now, uh, we're doing a whole load of impact-related activities with uh, uh, SRUC uh, and my centre has been one of uh, the organisers of a peatland pavilion in the Blue Zone uh, in COP26 with a whole load of uh, activities going on uh, that has helped to raise the profile of this uh, this new centre and, and our work at SRUC, but more importantly, helped use that work as part of a broader initiative to actually influence the negotiations, uh, politicians, and achieve impact. So the first question is around interest. The second one is around influence. Uh, there is a third question that is equally important to ask at this point. Uh, a lot of stakeholder analysis tools traditionally only ask about these first two things, interest and influence, and as a result, implicitly encourage you to prioritise high interest, high influence organisations like the United Nations, and ignore low interest, low power groups, despite the fact that these groups might in fact be the groups who could benefit most from your research. So the final question that you need to ask yourself is who could be impacted most by your work? Uh, three eyes, uh, interest, influence and impact. And we're thinking about impact, whether it is uh, positive or negative, and of course, whether or not they have any interest or influence, because this then helps you to identify and avoid overlooking marginalized and powerless groups who might be in fact your most important beneficiaries, but who are not likely to show much interest in your work and who are of course, by definition, not in any way influential. This then leads me directly to my second lesson which is to start with their needs, not your ideas. So you've got an idea of who's interested in your research. That's the first lesson. The next step is to reach out to these people and find out more about their interests and explore with them how you might be able to do research that could provide them with tangible benefits based on what they tell you. If you've got limited time, you can prioritise the most important organisations or groups, for example, those who are highly influential or vulnerable and hard to reach. Uh, just having conversations with two or three key stakeholders can enable you to focus your research in ways that can really make a difference. So ask yourself who you might reach out to and make a plan to meet for a virtual coffee and find out a bit more about their interests and how you might be able to really help them. People often ask me uh, what the first or most important thing is that they need to do if they want to have impact. If there's one thing I have to do, Mark, what is it? And this is my answer. Do a stakeholder analysis and reach out to a few of the people you identify and find out what makes them tick. 
Now, the key thing that makes this work so effectively is that it enables you to take an empathic approach to impact. Uh, once I understand what their interests are, I can send two or three emails out and they're going to be tailored to their interests. And it's not now, this is me, this is all of my research, and this is how I think we can help. It's more, this is you. Here are the challenges I understand you're facing. Here are your strategic objectives. And this is how we might be able to help. But I want to find out more, can we meet? And you're much more likely to get a yes from emails like that. And when you meet them, you're meeting in listening mode, putting yourself in their shoes to try and understand how they see the world much more deeply. And it is as simple as that. Do your stakeholder analysis, reach out to them, and open your mind. <laughs> So once you've met a few people who might be interested in your research, uh, you've got a few ideas now, and they're their ideas, uh, their needs, not yours, then you can start working with them to make a joint impact plan that delivers clear benefits to each of the different groups that you've reached out to. And you've got different activities that are tailored to the needs, the constraints, the challenges, the interests of those very different groups, so that you're more likely to actually achieve those goals. And uh, you're thinking to yourself, but yeah, I've no idea what on earth I would do to reach a group like that. Well, don't worry about it because you're going to go and talk to them and they're the ones who are going to give you those ideas, hopefully. You need to, of course, consider your assumptions uh, and what might go wrong. And uh, if you go to my website and download my impact planning template, you'll see all of this stuff laid out in a logic model, incredibly simply, incredibly logically. It is a logic model, a logic model after all. Um, and so you can then uh, see for each of those impact goals, who are the stakeholders, what are the activities, uh, what are the indicators that you can use to tell you if your impact is getting there or not, if the activities are working or not? What are the assumptions? What are the risks? What might go wrong? What could you do to avoid things going wrong? Who do you need to get help from? Who do you need to get funding from? All of that kind of stuff. And you've got a plan now. And then ultimately it's about working with the people that you've been engaging with to design and deliver now what is going to be action-oriented research that will directly answer your stakeholders' questions alongside your research questions. Now, the third of these five key lessons that I've learned over the last few decades researching and training on impact is simply this. Give as much as you get. Now, I'm going to read through the, uh, the, the key elements of this as I've written them into the epilogue before I uh, start discussing it this time. That was the plan. Um, and, uh, and so this is about delivering quick wins. For example, running training courses or webinars on the state of the art that your research is building on. Regularly get feedback on how the research is progressing and how their priorities and contexts are changing, for example via a stakeholder advisory panel. Co-design and produce events, for example industry workshops, and outputs, for example policy briefs, sharing resources and working together to follow up with participants effectively and transition from a knowledge hoarder to knowledge broker, and from university to boundary organization, inhabiting the space between people with different questions, knowledge, and ways of seeing the world. 
Now, this first one, the quick wins point, I think is something that people often forget about. Um, uh, and you kind of figure, well, I've got to collect my data, I've got to write it up, it's got to go through peer review, uh, I need to be uh, more of an expert in this, in fact, I need to be the world expert before I can pronounce anything on this. And that's kind of paralyzing, you don't ever get to impact. And what we forget, of course, is that we can already start generating impact based on the state of the art that we already are aware of. And as researchers, we do literature reviews, even as a PhD researcher, my first step is to do that literature review. And as a result, I'm way ahead of many of the practitioners and policy colleagues and people from industry that I might be working with. And so I can now open this up to them. You don't have to be the world expert in something, you just need to be a few steps ahead of someone else on this journey and be convinced of the evidence that you are basing your assertions upon. So when I was a PhD student in Botswana, uh, I had training uh, as a social science uh, research student on how to do interviews and focus groups because I was using them to collect data. Uh, and the, the UN programme that I was working alongside was doing interviews uh, with local people and doing its own research programme. And I was looking at what they were doing and thinking, yeah, this is not really how I've been taught to do it. And I can see it's not really going that well for people. Um, I don't really know that much about this, but I know a little bit and I've got these slides. And how do you fancy me doing a bit of a, a course on this based on what I learned uh, when I got trained on this? And they were like, yeah, great, why not? Let's see what we can learn. Um, and I was kind of nervous. <laughs> I certainly didn't feel like I really knew what I was talking about, but I knew a bit more than they did. Um, and then we did a, a bunch of kind of practical role plays kind of things as part of the course, and then went out into the field and started to feed back on each other uh, and apply what we'd learned uh, in this course using the slides that I'd brought them um, in practice. And it transformed their practice and they were really grateful for it. Uh, so ask yourself, well, what are the things that I'm currently doing? Maybe you're actually doing stuff with your students um, as part of learning and teaching, uh, or you've learned stuff as a researcher, methods uh, like I had there that you could actually use to train others in policy, in, in practice, in industry, in the third sector. Uh, and, uh, and I think we often forget that, uh, that the knowledge that we have based on uh, just the literature review that we've done, uh, on the state of the art that just is part of the furniture for us, that can be hugely, hugely valuable for others. And I'll talk a bit more in the next point about how we can build that into evidence synthesis and, and the like. So before you've done any of your own empirical research, you can already be publishing this, turning it into policy briefs and, and making a difference based on bodies of, of work. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, coming back to the, the centre, um, I've said I've got a, a co-lead in the centre, um, Dr Hannah Rodman, and Hannah is uh, just as networked as I am. In fact, in fact, she's more networked than I am. I stand in awe of her networks. Uh, and we both make it a point, uh, as co-leads of the centre, if this is a centre that is going to achieve impact, we have to devote significant amounts of our time to non-academic networks, events, initiatives. So Hannah co-leads uh, a group called the Scottish Conservation Finance Pioneers, puts a huge amount of time into that, and that is networking uh, academics yes, uh, but primarily practitioners and policymakers across Scotland and increasingly now from outside Scotland as well uh, to share the latest knowledge 
evidence, but also initiatives, questions, ideas, and they have a whole series of events, etc. Uh, but that's just one of a number of initiatives that she is playing a pivotal role in. Um, and as you know, I've been working with this UN initiative. Uh, I also have a role as research lead for a conservation charity, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, also working on peatlands. And I spend a huge amount of time just being that team player, coming in to team meetings with my third sector colleagues, uh, responding to issues. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, it was uh, someone who had uh, tweeted something that um, uh, was going against uh, an evidence briefing that uh, the charity had uh, had published. And we needed to come up with an evidence-based response to that tweet. Um, so I put aside some time, had to be responded to that day and um, contacted some colleagues because I didn't have all the evidence I need and needed. And, uh, and we came up with a response, which we tweeted. And and uh, we updated some stuff on our website. Now, the fourth of my fifth key lessons uh, I've just alluded to is about basing action on bodies of work rather than your latest findings. And the key thing here, I'm going to read and then unpack briefly at the end, is to fight the temptation to overgeneralize, overclaim, or make recommendations based on single studies or limited findings to get into top journals, get noticed by policymakers, please funders, or climb career ladders. Instead, integrate, critique, and make sense of the wider literature, framing your latest findings in that context. Write literature reviews and books, even if they're not valued in your discipline, and make them available to your stakeholders as briefing notes. Your future research will benefit from what you can learn as much as your colleagues and stakeholders. With the right techniques, it's possible to write a full draft narrative review or rapid evidence synthesis in a week of hard work, I will confess. <laughs> and you can see my chapter in The Productive Researcher for the narrative review technique uh, that I use, or organize a residential training on evidence synthesis where you can learn the skills you need as you write your first evidence synthesis paper. And this is the point I'm going to unpack because uh, a couple of years ago now, um, uh, it was just before the first lockdown, uh, we managed to hold our first residential uh, trip. And this was led by Dr. Gav Stewart from Newcastle University, co-funded by the University of Leeds and N8 Agri-Food. And we got a collection of researchers, a uh, residential course, and we're learning now, how do you do rapid evidence synthesis? And uh, Google those three words if you want to find out how to do this, because a rapid evidence synthesis is much quicker uh, than your traditional full systematic review. Now, it is, of course, a bit narrower than a, a full systematic review, so you have to be very focused, and not all questions will suit a rapid evidence synthesis. But because of that very focused nature, it does become really quite remarkably tractable. Uh, and the, the goal then is uh, for a week's worth of time uh, that, uh, with support from a trainer, that you do that uh, reading, 
Uh, you've got all of your kind of quality control measures in place, etc. You're comparing, contrasting, integrating, and you have your first synthesis drafted by the end. You can then send it for peer review. In fact, everyone can uh, sort of pre-review. -pre uh, everyone can pre-review each other's papers before you then submit them all. Uh, and it's remarkable how inexpensive this is. So um, we haven't done the stats yet, but we've got a whole raft of these rapid evidence syntheses, each with their own policy brief. Uh, linked to them. Uh, and we reckon it's somewhere between one and two thousand pounds, um, closer to one, I suspect, um, per rapid evidence, evidence synthesis and policy brief. Uh, so not only a very quick way of synthesizing the evidence, but, but also a very inexpensive way. Now, the fifth and final of these five lessons that I'm drawing out of my work is to be curious about what works. Remain curious about who has benefited from your research and how, looking for unintended consequences, learning from mistakes, and building on what works. Create a space where you and other team members can quickly and easily keep evidence of impact, for example, an email folder, a shared online document, an app like Evernote or OneNote, or an online repository. And for significant impacts, research your impact and look for evidence to find out if your research played an important role. Now, the key thing about researching your impact is that you need to start early. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who have been asked by their funders or by others to uh, get evidence for their impact. And uh, when you start too late, you don't have a baseline. You don't have a before and after. Uh, you don't have uh, permission to go back to uh, stakeholders but, and you weren't able to keep hold of their, uh, their contact details. And you've got a problem. And so uh, in our center, Hannah and I are thinking about how we can set things up so that we're not just kind of collecting random bits of data, but we're actually designing an action research project. So yeah, we're trying to generate impact uh, in Scotland around something called landscape enterprise networks, uh, engaging with uh, the, the business, with environment, um, and trying to protect, uh, but also uh, enhance the quality of the environment and, um, and mitigate climate change. And we're really early stages yet. We have no impact at this point, um, but we have put in our ethics application so that we can now uh, conduct research interviews as we go. And we suspect that the first interviews that we will do, we probably won't use, but you never know uh, if we can actually track how this evolves over time through regular interviews with all of the key stakeholders uh, and get them bought into this as an action research project that they can co-author with us at the end that will enable them to reflect on what they've learned from the process uh, through our interviews in the first place uh, as we talk about this and discuss this and through the process of writing it up eventually, then that's a win-win uh, for everyone. And I think it's, it's worth thinking about what you can do, uh, what are the ethics you need to put in place, can you go above and beyond just thinking, well, we'll do an online survey right at the end of this, uh, to think about the depth and quality of data that you might ideally want at the end when you look back to find out, did we have an impact or not? And a key thing about doing this in depth is that we're learning, we're being curious. And of course, that's what makes a great interviewer. Uh, you don't need to be trained as a social scientist to 
do this, you just need to ask questions and be curious and keep asking, huh, why? And why, why that? And, uh, and, and then what happens? And just keep digging in and, and asking those questions and you know, get some help. Uh, go to your ethics committee, get some guidelines, uh, make sure you're doing this right. Uh, but you don't have to be an expert interviewer to do this. Um, uh, just be curious, uh, record as you go. And at the end of this, you'll have a really rich data source to draw on and you'll have learned as you go. Surprising the things people will tell you uh, that are not working <laughs> if you are genuinely open and humble and ask those questions that enable you to adapt and make sure that it actually does work at the end of the day. So, five lessons. The key things, when I really boil it down, are the key things you need to know if you want to achieve impact both effectively and efficiently. You're going to find out who's interested in your work. You're going to start with their needs, not your ideas. You're going to give as much as you get. And you're going to base action on, base on bodies of work rather than your latest findings. And you're going to remain curious about what works. This is fundamentally an empathic process, as I've described, putting the people that we might want to help first rather than our research first. And of course, that does require some compromises. Uh, we're having to climb down our ivory towers, uh, cross over a few gardens, uh, knock on a few doors, hopefully be invited in, uh, look around ourselves, uh, listen, be respectful uh, and understand what it is like to be that other person in their context. And as we see the world through their eyes, we begin to see our research in a new way and the contribution that we can make in a new way. Uh, it may be that uh, there are things we can do to very easily adapt our research so that we can make it more impactful and deliver more benefits to people like that. It may be that we have to add on some additional stuff that we can't write up as a research paper uh, that isn't even potentially linked to our own research. It's based on other people's research or bodies of evidence. But as we key into those needs, as we empathise, as we connect, then uh, we not only get the knowledge, but we get the desire to really do something to meet those needs. And now, as a result, we can co-produce our research with these people and do something far, far more effective. And of course, it saves you time as well, because it's not a scattergun approach. And when I'm doing this from my ivory tower, I'm lobbing ideas out of the top of my tower, and some of them meet their mark. Great, that was good luck. But a lot of them just land in no man's land, or maybe squash someone inadvertently. Oops. Uh, and actually, it's not an efficient use of time. And in actual, actual fact, a whole load of research is wasted in terms of impact. It never has any impact at all. So let's design this from the outset with the needs of our stakeholders, the interests of the public, that we work with at heart. And if we do, we're going to make our impact way, way more effective and efficient.